Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. I want to tell you three important ideas that come from the second reading today that Dan read for us. I want to talk about God's good news. I want to talk about the reality of sin. And I want to talk about the freedom of baptism. Here's the first important idea, God's good news. Now, one of Sarah's duties as a deacon is to go into the center of the room every Sunday morning and proclaim the gospel from that big book there. Now, gospel is a word that simply means good news. I myself am a pretty low shelf, simple thinker. And I think that if we are going to call something good news, then it ought to meet both criteria. It ought to be good and it ought to sound like news. Now, there are many ways that preachers like me have taken God's good news and made it neither one of those things. Many ways for preachers to shrink down and deprive God's gospel from its goodness. One classic repeat offense is when we turn the gospel into a story that begins with us and begins with our problems. In this format, Jesus magically transforms into a tool whose only reason for existence is to be available to jump in and save the day. Now, anytime you hear a presentation of God's good news where Jesus has been instrumentalized, you know that you are in trouble. And this is one of those occasions that happens often in American Christianity. To be more precise, any preaching that starts with bad news and then moves to good news, is fundamentally, theologically, on the wrong foot to begin with. 
thank you. Look, that's like, you know, that's like pouring gas on the preacher's fire. Like, <laughs> okay, now I'm almost finished. Um, um, <laughs> but you're right, and you're you're right, and I know you're right. Any preaching that starts bad and goes to good, fundamentally on the wrong foot. I want to tell you an older way of talking about God's good news. The gospel is a story about God, not you. You can come in later, but it's about God. And it's about God's deepest desires. God's deepest desire, weirdly, surprisingly, maybe even shockingly, is to be in constant communion with all of creation. Whatever guesses we think God might be, what we have discovered is that God is a God who wants to be with everyone and everything. Here's the good news. The God of Israel's deepest longing has always been to be with you, not use you, not punish you, certainly not to destroy you, but to be with you you. And God always desired to come among us in Jesus Christ so that we could enjoy this communion with God. God coming in Jesus Christ was not some plan B crisis. Uh Uh-oh, some things have gone wrong. Get in there. This was always God's desire to be with us. Now, the reality of death made God's desire to come among us a little riskier for God. Am I really going to go all the way to be with these people. But what we discover is that when God joined us and partook of communion with our humanity, even communing with us in death, God was able in God's divinity to transform our death into eternal life. This means, my dear sisters, brothers, and siblings, long before you ever got interested in God, God was deeply interested and invested in you. Whether you know it or not, Jesus Christ has always been involved in your life, which means that everybody is already proximate to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has always been working to draw you closer into the heart of God. And when God brings you closer into the heart of God, it is for one reason only. To be with you. And when you turn that rock over and say, why? The only reason is that God loves you. That's actually pretty good, and that's probably actually news to some of you. Here's the second important idea from Romans. The reality of sin. Now, the text this morning kicked off talking about sin in the second reading, but theologically, you cannot talk about sin if you do not first start talking about good news. And while this may be news to some of us, it's the theological reality. Any kind of preaching that begins with sin and then tags Jesus in, as we have said, is doomed from the start. This is why we began this sermon talking about the good news. God first speaks life love to us. God tells us God's good news that we are all being brought back to life. 
God is trying to make you more human, not less. We think our humanity gets in the way of what God wants out of us, but actually God's just trying to make us more deeply human than we've ever been. So to talk about you know, sin before we talk about God's love is a bad theological idea because until you know the good news, there's actually literally no way for you to even intelligibly think about what the Bible talks about when it talks about sin anyway. And once you have been encountered by God's amazing, profound love, only then can you have some clarity about what the heck the Bible talks about when it talks about sin. And believe me, I've heard lots of professional Christians spend lots of time in pulpits talking about sin. And most of it is, in my experience at least, been pretty cheap. God's good news shines a bright light onto sin and exposes it for what it is. Sin in the Bible is described as a brutal enslaver. That is a very different reality than sin just being a list of naughty verbs that you shouldn't do. This is one of the most significant ways that we have cheapened preaching in American Christianity. And it's not like there haven't been reasons for why uh, preachers in America wouldn't want to talk about sin being an enslaver. You can't really know that this is the case unless you've first been embraced by God's love. I mean, it's really evident in texts like today. If you've been in American Christianity, almost across all denominations, you've probably heard the text that Dan read today. And it says one thing, but you heard another. What the text says is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life for Christ Jesus. And depending on how evangelical your background was, you may have even had a little chart that came with that or uh, ways to present that to other people. Now, here's the problem. That's not what the words actually said. It says the wages of sin is death. What you hear is, oh, that means God is going to punish me for my sin with the death penalty. That is not what those words mean. I mean, I hate to bring grammar into it at 10.57 on a Sunday morning, but here we are. The wages of sin is possessive. It's genitive construction. These are sins, capital S, sins wages. And what is a wage? A wage is what you get paid. I get paid in U.S. dollars. I assume you do too. A wage is what you are paid out. So what this scripture is actually doing is laying out a very stark contrast. You can, if you would like, continue to get in the employment line for sin. When you do that, do not be surprised. The only wage it ever pays you is death. That's all it can ever deposit into your account. You sign up to work for sin, you're going to get death. Or... Over here, you have Jesus Christ, who's just giving life away. I mean, it's like a totally a really stark difference. And yet somehow we have distorted the gospel into saying, God really loves you, but is also very willing to get rid of you if you don't comply. So comply. Instead of saying, no, we keep like just employing ourselves to the power of sin. And of course, it just results in more death for everybody around us, ourselves included. Or we can just 
get out of that line altogether and really sync up with Jesus Christ's loving, liberating, and life-giving vision for the world, and then all the people around us start coming to life. It's a really big difference. What I mean is, if you want to start thinking seriously about how the Bible thinks about sin, you have to start reading it with a capital S, almost like a character. Sin is not a category of naughty verbs. I mean, how do you think this worked? God was up in heaven before it all got started and laid out all the verbs on three by five note cards and started like designating them. That's a virtue, that's a virtue, that's a, that's a sin. Put it in this pile over here. And then there's just a long list of no-nos. I mean, maybe that works when you're three, but come on. That, that is such a cheap way of thinking about this life that God has given us. Sin is not a list of naughty verbs. Most American Christians sinfully think that sin is something that we do rather than a power which possesses us. So says Stanley Hauerwas, ethicist at Duke University. If you think that sin is just a list of no-nos, you're going to continue to cheaply think that racism and hatred and homophobia and not helping people that need help are simply bad behaviors that are going to go away if we can get everybody just a little more education and encourage everyone to try real hard. Rather than tell a truer story that, my God, for all of our efforts, it seems that against all effort, we are in the clutches in this country of racism and deep hatred for one another. And if we have been possessed, then we need real help. When you start thinking that sin is simply just a bad behavior that we can kick once we really set our minds to it, it's only gonna be a matter of time before your narcissism turns into guilt and then you're gonna to start to believe that your guilt will accurately tell you a comprehensive story about your sin. Take it from me. Do not count on your narcissism telling you a true story about how sin works. Instead, put your eyes on Jesus Christ. Put your eyes on God. Put your eyes on hope. Put your eyes on love. Truly believe that you have been embraced by the unrelenting love of God. And from there, you will find the courage to see all of the ways that the power of sin has enslaved us and has taken us captive to its commands and demands for how we order our common life together. Which brings us to the third important idea from Romans. The freedom in baptism. In light of God's unconditional love, we begin to see just how possessed we all are by sin and the ways of evil and the ways of choosing to deal out death to one another rather than bringing each other to life. This is where baptism helps us. Baptism tells us to do something else with sin and evil rather than simply trying to come up with cute Sunday school explanations for what sin is. When you get baptized in this church, we ask you a lot of questions. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers in the world which are corrupting and destroying one of us, all of us? Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? And will you actually persevere in trying to resist evil 
And when it does happen and you fall into sin because it's laid traps for you all around, will you repent and return to the Lord? That's a very different understanding of sin than simply, you know, behave better, children. Instead of vainly trying to explain sin, baptism gives us better responses. You and I should be the people, if we're actually centering our lives on Jesus Christ, we should be renouncing sin, we should be resisting it, we should be repenting, and ultimately we should be putting our eyes on Jesus Christ. But it's kind of a fool's errand to try to understand sin. There's no real deep understanding to be had there. I remember one time I heard um, uh, Edgardo Colon Emmerique put it, put it, he put it some, something like this. He said, in the same way that the Trinity, God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the same way that that is too luminous for our understanding, thinking really deeply about a rationale for evil or this enslaver sin, it's too opaque. There's no understanding to be had there. The whole point is that it is quite irrational. There is no deep learning to have there. It's just evil. And part of the reason that I'm not wasting your time listing all of the many uh, ways that it has expressed itself this week is because you know it already and so do I, and we need hope. And baptism is God's way of conscripting us into a better way of being human than simply continuing to deal out death to one another. We do baptisms every week. I mean, I don't know if you've been to other Episcopal churches. Our baptismal font's actually pretty big. Um, We've tried to make a really big deal out of baptism. And the reason that we get around those waters every single service is to put our minds on how God is bringing us to life in baptism. And we can do baptisms every Sunday. There's no preparation that's needed, actually. You'll have a lifetime after you're baptized to figure out what it was about. It's literally how that works why they call it new birth. How much about life did you know before you got born? Nothing. And how much are you paying your therapist 30 years later to figure out what this life has been about? That's how this works. Just me? Okay. All you ever have to do is tell me you want to be baptized and we make it happen. So the scriptures point us in response to all the ways that we deal in death. The scriptures instead point us to baptism. It's a response to God's love, not how evil the world is. Be baptized and conscript yourself to God, who is just giving you eternal life, instead of continuing to stand in the employment line for sin, which will only ever pay you death. This is why the text can say things like, therefore, stop letting sin, the evil, enslaving force that has its clutches on us all, Stop letting that rule over your body. Be baptized. Don't keep offering parts of your body to sin to let it be used to continue to deal death in the world. Instead, give yourself to God. In baptism, you get brought to life. And you can offer all of your parts, all of your body, all of your life back to God. Sin has no power over you. And if sin has no power over you, Come out of those baptismal waters and you can live as if you have already been raised from the dead. Because in baptism, you have.
You can find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.